the only way in which you can have God's favor is by accepting Jesus for who he said he is. As a savior who came to make a payment for your sin, then the love of God is lavished upon you. Never to leave your life. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part five of Christ, the Center of All History, in 11 parts from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor Paul's text today is chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 of the Gospel of Matthew. In yesterday's part four teaching, Pastor commented that, quote, what Jesus does is he comes as the greater Moses to set his people free, end quote. Matthew, an apostle, wrote his gospel with a Jewish readership in mind. Matthew was a Jew, and he was called to follow Jesus out of a life of bondage. He'd been a tax collector, a notoriously corrupt profession. And although the Jews, for the most part, rejected Christ, they viewed Moses as a deeply revered figure who led his people out of their Egyptian bondage. But Pastor points out that Jewish bondage would soon return, It was never fully erased, not in the way the power of Christ's death and resurrection frees his followers from bondage to sin for now and eternity. Here's part five of Christ, the center of all history. So then, if we understand that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as a greater Moses, we might ask what exactly are the correspondences that he wants us to see? And I would say they are primarily twofold. I'm zooming out here and taking Matthew's gospel as a whole into view and the correspondences that Matthew wants us to see between Christ and Moses are primarily twofold. The first is that both men serve to release their people from bondage and set them free. Think back to Moses, his mission was to set the people of Israel free from their bondage in Egypt. They were enslaved by Pharaoh. Their labor kept increasing. Pharaoh was working them to the bone because he felt threatened by them. Moses was a reluctant leader. God called him. At the burning bush, he commissioned him and Moses hesitated. In one sense, he was very bold because he pushed back on God. But he was very hesitant as it related to going towards Pharaoh. And God says, you will go and say to Pharaoh, this is my God. Let my people go. Reluctantly, Moses goes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, who is this Yahweh? And he shows Pharaoh who he is through almighty displays of his power that brings the most powerful nation at that time on the entire planet to its knees. Through these different signs, he brings Pharaoh and the nation to their knees to the point where Pharaoh finally says, go, you have to get out of here. I can't compete with your God any longer. And it's at that point that Moses, in his God-ordained role, parts the waters of the Red Sea 
I wish we could have seen it. Walls of water on either side stood up, not one drop falling without God ordaining it. And thousands of Israelites walking through on dry land, following their leader, Moses. And Pharaoh, ironically, has a change of heart at the last minute. So he commissions his armies to go after them, and they sure enough they do, and then the waters come crashing down, and he destroys them. Moses sets his people free from bondage. That's how we're introduced to him as a figure in the biblical narrative. How much more so does Jesus set us free from our bondage? You have to understand, to see and appreciate Jesus as the greater Moses, you have to see how much more is our bondage. So much more than the physical bondage portrayed of the Israelites in Exodus is our bondage, apart from Christ, to sin. The sinner is wrapped in cords of sin, bondage to sin, that day by day are growing tighter around his chest and tighter around his neck and the bondage that we experience as sinners is far stronger than any manual labor to which Pharaoh gave the Israelite people we can't see it with our eyes you can be the most physically comfortable person on planet earth And theologically, it's true of you that apart from Christ, your enslavement to sin is more oppressive than anything that is pictured of the Israelites in Egypt. And you do not have the strength to break free from those cords of bondage. You do not have the strength to do anything about your bondage to sin. What is tragic is that apart from any work of God's grace in your heart, you actually delight in that bondage. We love our sin, and we don't love God. We don't even have enough spiritual awareness to see that we need rescuing. And so the bondage to which we're enslaved gets heavier and tighter with each passing year, and we keep feeding it. We delight in it and we don't cry out for mercy. And what Jesus does is he comes as the greater Moses to set his people free from a spiritual bondage. Jesus comes to set us free from the spiritual bondage that we didn't acknowledge we needed. He gives us a salvation that we were not aware that we needed. He comes and sets the cords of bondage loose so that that they are smashed into pieces, never to be wrapped around the Christian, never to be retied onto those whom Jesus has saved. Do you understand that as Christ has saved you, you are never, ever, ever again enslaved to sin? Does the Christian continue to sin after his salvation yes the war with the flesh continues until the day christ returns but the key difference 
is that you will never again be enslaved to sin. It will never again have mastery over you. Jesus will not let those cords of bondage retie themselves to you. And so as Jesus comes as the greater Moses, he sets you free to be free indeed. To be free forever after. Never again to experience bondage to sin. But now wonderfully free to obey his command which is exactly what God created you to do. Charles Wesley wrote long, my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound by sin and nature's might. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon inflamed with light. My chains fell off. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus is our Moses. First, because he sets us free from bondage. But there is a second way in which Jesus functions as a greater Moses. Again, zooming out, noting the initial correspondence here, and then zooming out to take the totality of Matthew's gospel into view this morning. In Matthew's gospel in particular, he stresses Jesus' mosaic teaching ministry. So in all of the gospels, we see Jesus come as a miracle worker, as a teacher, and ultimately as a savior. In Matthew's gospel in particular, he puts an accent on Jesus as a teacher, So in weeks to come, I'll show you how Matthew's gospel is divided into five clear sections. And one of the defining marks of each section is the sustained discourse from Jesus as it relates to his teaching. That's a literary feature of Matthew that is not found in any of the other gospels. These five units of sustained teaching from Jesus. And perhaps more immediately than that, we see on the near horizon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7, only to be found in Matthew's gospel. And notice there the many mosaic allusions. To begin with, Jesus goes up to the mountain. It's a small inflection in the text, but it's important in Matthew's theology because he's presenting Jesus as the greater Moses. Moses led his people out of Egypt, and he led them to the mountain. Moses received from the mountain God's good law. He gave it to the people of Israel, and it was to be to them life-giving. The law in the Old Testament was never intended to be a means by which they would earn God's love. They already have it. I am the Lord your God who drew you out of Egypt. That's how the Ten Commandments begin. Don't skip those words because they lay a foundation of grace. I am the Lord your God. I have already given myself to you. I have drawn you out of Egypt and as Hosea says, therein you see my love. Know that you have my love. In response to my love, here is my good law. And that teaching, chapter after chapter in the Old Testament, 
was given so that the people of Israel would flourish in their relationship with their God. But they rejected his law. They turned their back on his good commands. They enslaved themselves again to sin. Jesus comes in Matthew's gospel being presented as the greater Moses. In chapter 5, he goes up the mountain and he opens his mouth and he gives a new law, which is to be life-giving for his disciples. This is the very means by which you will flourish in a relationship with your Father in heaven. And this law is completely out of this world. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There is no one saying that. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus says. There is no one saying that. Everyone says, pity those who mourn. Jesus brings a law from heaven and says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of my father. Not even the Pharisees are saying that. The Pharisees wouldn't say that. Jesus proclaims that. He says, you need to be perfect like my father in heaven is perfect. And on and on, his good teaching comes to us as a means by which we would live our life, not to earn God's favor. It is given to us by grace through faith as we look at the person of Christ and accept him for who he is. If you are here this morning, having not been reconciled to God, never having put your trust in Christ, you don't have God's favor. You do not, and you cannot earn it through your own efforts. The only way in which you can have God's favor is by accepting Jesus for who he said he is. As a savior who came to make a payment for your sin, then the love of God is lavished upon you. Never to leave your life. His favor is upon you and then he requests in return that you would live your life in obedience to his word. Out of gratitude for your salvation. And Jesus comes as the greater Moses to give that very law to us. A few weeks ago, I joked that it is a fearful thing as a preacher to consider the task of preaching the greatest sermon ever preached in such a way that you don't detract from it, but you make it clear. As I've been thinking more and more about that sermon and the reality of us working through it for many months, I'm really excited. As a church, we will submit our minds and our hearts Sunday by Sunday to the sermon that came from the greater Moses for our good. Now, the response, as we see Matthew presenting Jesus as our Moses, is to worship him and very practically to worship him by not returning to the sins from which we have been saved. I mentioned it just a few minutes ago. If you track with the Exodus narrative, God saves these people from Egypt. Moses is their leader. He leads them to the mountain and they receive a good life-giving law. 
And then when you get to the book book of Numbers, they're in the wilderness and they're returning to their same old sins again. And what's fascinating as you read the Numbers narrative in particular is that Moses portrays the people in that book in the likeness of their enslavement in Egypt. They're not in Egypt anymore. They've been set free from that. And yet the same things become true of them in the wilderness as was true of them in Egypt. He's showing them they're right back where they were before by their own choice now. They're returning to their sin. They're not responding in gratitude. As Jesus is the greater, better, more glorified Moses, the imperative that comes to us this morning is that we would live as those who have been set free from sin. Consider who you once were and don't be that person. But according to the grace afforded to you in the gospel, fight against sin in your life and run towards the word of God and do all that you can to get your life under his word. Do everything that you can to conform your life to God's word as a way of showing your gratitude that Jesus is our Moses who sets us free from bondage and gives us a life-giving law. That's the first correspondence the first resonant frequency that Matthew presents to us. The second one is with David, and this one is a little bit trickier to trace. Matthew goes on in verse 14, he rose, Joseph, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. I've spoken to you a number of times in the last few weeks about seeing the New Testament authors quote the Old Testament. And every time we see a New Testament quotation in an Old Testament text, we understand we've got some study to do. We have to ask why that author saw fit to use that text. What's the theological point that he wants to make? Scholars commonly agree that this particular New Testament use of the Old Testament is the most difficult in all of the Bible. Are you encouraged? (laughs) It is the most difficult New Testament use of the Old Testament to understand in all of Scripture. So if we can understand this one, we've become professionals at this. I need... For your attention to be here, if you've been asleep thus far this morning, now's the time to wake up. The fact that the Word of God is difficult needs no apologies. The Word of God is wonderful. It is simple enough that a child could read it and understand eternal truths. At the same time, it is complex and profound enough that you and I could spend the next thousand years considering it and have not reached its depths. Isn't that wonderful? So we don't shy away from difficult texts, but we give them all of our attention so as to honor the Lord. And that would include this quotation from Hosea here. The fact that Hosea is doing something out of the ordinary, or I should say the fact that Matthew 
is, is made plain to us by simply considering that had Matthew wanted to talk more about the Exodus, presumably he would have gone back to the book of Exodus. Just consider that first observation as an entry point into this problem. Matthew introduces us to Jesus as the greater Moses. He's now moving on to a second correspondence. If Matthew had wanted to talk more about the Exodus event alone, where would he have gone in the Old Testament to do that but the book of Exodus? And yet he doesn't. What he does is he goes to Hosea as a way of talking about the Exodus. So something more is going on just by that first initial observation. Turn with me back to Hosea. We read chapter 11 this morning. Go a little bit further back to chapter 3. I'll give you the thesis statement up front and then we'll try to see it. The reason Matthew goes back to the Exodus event by way of Hosea is because he wants to present Jesus as the greater David who will lead us home. That's why Matthew does this. Now, how do I show that? When you get to the book of Hosea, the prophet is speaking all about God's love. The prophet Hosea speaks extensively about God's love, God's love in judgment and God's love in salvation. One of the defining features of Hosea's prophecy is its Davidic element. Hosea labors on David in his prophecies of judgment and salvation. Look with me just by way of example at chapter 3. Verse 3, I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Verse 4, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Verse 5, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. That's just one example of many within the book of Hosea where the prophet projects forward with an oracle of salvation, final salvation, and does so by invoking the reality of David. Now think just a little bit about that prophecy. He cannot be referring to the first David. Hosea gives these prophecies long after the historical reign of David the man. He's finished. Hosea then comes along, projects forward, and says there is coming a day of salvation for God's people Israel when they will seek David. So we understand the Davidic element to Hosea's theology is one that speaks inherently of a second David, a David-like figure who's coming on the horizon of salvation history. That is everywhere in Hosea. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. Pastor Paul has shown us how Herod's evil plan could not thwart God's plan of redemption for all mankind. Matthew also saw that Moses could not lead the Jews out of their bondage. No sooner were they out of Egypt, they fall into ingratitude and idol worship. All of the great Jewish leaders of the past 
Moses, King David, and others did not provide the redemption that would come in Christ Jesus. We who are resting in Christ know that we are free from the grip of sin's bondage. Have you found that kind of victory? If you'd like to learn more about the peace that comes from following Jesus Christ, come to our website, timelesstruthtoday.org, timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, select Broadcasts. There you'll find an amazing archive of gospel teaching centered on Jesus Christ. Hope you'll join us tomorrow for part six in our continuing series, Christ, the Center of All History. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.